We've spent a lot of time uh, this summer in many ways, uh, it feels like speeding through the Old Testament. And uh, the way we've looked at the Old Testament this summer is by uh, looking at what the Old Testament calls uh, covenants. We've been looking at covenants uh, that God makes with specific people uh, throughout the Old Testament. And if you haven't been with us, a covenant is, is simply um, a definition of the relationship. It is God determining and defining the terms of his relationship with his people. And all of it's a great reminder that the God whom we worship is a relational God. He's a God who longs to be in relationship with his people, a deep and biding relationship. And he longs that for you and I as well. He longs to be in relationship with us. But what we've been reminded of, and make no mistake of this, is God is the one who sets the terms of those relationship, of that relationship. We don't necessarily get to set the terms of that relationship. And that's what we've seen this summer. What we've also seen is that the covenants tend to build upon one another. So there was a covenant to Noah, and then after that, there was the covenant to Abraham, and then that built into the covenant with Moses. And then last week, we looked at the covenant with Joshua. And what we find is that with each covenant, the picture brings us closer to Jesus. In many ways, like a, a camera, we don't, we don't use cameras as much anymore, but if you remember the, the now old cameras where you got to kind of move the, the, the lens in order for the picture to become clear, as we've moved the lens of the Old Testament, the picture becomes clearer and clearer about the person of Jesus Christ, especially as we look at the covenant with David, which is what we're going to look at this morning. I'm going to be reading from uh, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, and I'm going to be reading verses uh, 1 to 17. There's a parallel passage uh, in 1 Chronicles 17 as well, but we'll be reading from the passage in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, again, verses 1 to 17. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies... The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore... Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people, Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them 
so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. A violent men and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. For the time that I appointed judges over my people of Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would hear your voice this morning, that all the voices that tend to clamor for our attention um, would be drowned out by the strength of your voice in our hearts. So speak to us through your word. We're thankful that your spirit attends that word to make us understand it and be enlightened by it. So we pray uh, to that end this morning as we look at this passage. In Christ's name, amen. I want to look at this passage uh, in terms of really three aspects. This is looking at David's story, and I want to look at it in three aspects. The first is, is David's design for his legacy. The second is God's design for David's legacy. And the third is David's sin and how it affected his legacy. So you got that? That's what we're going to do. There's those three points. So first, David's design for his legacy. And you really see this uh, in verses 1 to 3. When we come to this passage in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David has already lived a very full life. If you read the beginnings of his story, he was a shepherd boy, uh, really the runt of his family litter. And yet, despite all that, surprisingly, uh, he is uh, anointed to be the next king of the nation of Israel. But the current king, who was King Saul at the time, certainly didn't like that fact. He felt threatened by it. And so he chased David for years and years Uh, trying multiple times to have him killed. And and David, during this time, has to live in the wilderness. He lives uh, away from everything that he knows, from his family, from his friends. He lives constantly in hiding. And what God does in this wilderness period of David's life is he really shapes David's heart. And you see that evidenced in the book of Psalms, because in the book of Psalms, you read in many ways David's prayers during his time in the wilderness where God was really shaping his heart. His his heart for God really is on display. His courage, as we know from earlier his life, is on display when he slays the giant Goliath. And so David is this remarkable character. But now as our passage opens up, uh, Saul is gone. And David has now finally been installed and coronated as king over the entire land. He's no longer a fugitive. 
He no longer has to live life on the run. He's absolutely arrived at the place that God called and prepared him to be. And so what I think is natural for David is at this point in his life, he starts to think about what the next chapter of his life is going to look at. Most scholars believe that at this point in David's life, he's probably right around 40 years of age when all of this takes place. And being one who recently turned 40, uh, I can relate to the fact that one starts to think a little bit differently about life. Uh, For some reason, the invincibility of youth that we all feel tends to disappear a little bit. Um, at, At this point in one's life, life has taught you a few lessons. You're starting to kind of figure some things out and maybe have a little bit more wisdom. But I think more than anything, at this point in life for David and for all of us, I think we start to really ask some questions about life. We ask questions like, well, what what has life taught me thus far? What have I learned so far? And we start to think about what is the next chapter of my life going to look like? How can I take these remaining years that God has given me and do something that really matters. And I think that's exactly what David is starting to think about as he sits on his throne. He really is pondering what his legacy in his life is really going to be. I want us to think about that idea of legacy. And, and, and in some ways, the financial world has taken that word legacy building or that concept of legacy building and applied it in purely financial means in terms of how can I save enough money for retirement or what's going to happen to my money after I die. But really, questions of legacy are important for all of us. We should all be concerned about what sort of legacy that we are going to leave behind. We should always be asking questions like, how can we build a life that not only impacts the world now, during our lives, but also impacts the world after we are gone? How can we instill gospel virtues and ethics in our kids? How can we instill them in our friendships and our relational networks? How can we build structures out of our life that will last after we are gone? Uh, David Brooks calls this uh, the difference between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. You've maybe heard me talk about this before. Resume virtues are the things that we do to build a resume. They're about achieving and impressing others with our, uh, uh, with our accomplishments. But eulogy virtues are different. And I think the older we get, the more we get concerned about our eulogy virtues. What kind of person are, gonna peop- are people going to talk about when they come to our eulogy, when our lives have ended. And so I think David is starting to really transfer from thinking about his resume virtues to thinking about his eulogy virtues. And he comes up with a great idea. And the great idea is he wants to engage in a building project. You see, up to this point, God's presence, which was signified by the Ark of the Covenant, was housed in a tent. And that tent was called a tabernacle. And as David is sitting on his throne, he feels sort of weird about this because he lives in a magnificent palace uh, built with the finest of gold and the finest of cedar. And yet God's presence still dwells in a tent. 
And so what he decides to do is he decides, I'm going to build a great temple for God. It will be magnificent. It will be the center of Israelite worship. And David decides that he will accomplish this for God. He wants this temple to be his legacy, the temple that David built for God. Maybe there's some corporate naming rights that he wants to add to this temple. And so he gets this idea, and he even goes to the prophet Nathan. He wants to consult with with God's prophet, and he tells Nathan his idea. And Nathan, without any sort of hesitation, thinks that this is a wonderful idea. This is a great idea. So let's move forward with building God a temple. So everybody thinks this is a great idea until the night comes. And God visits the prophet Nathan in the middle of the night and that he receives a word from God. And that word outlines not David's plan for his legacy, but God's design for David's legacy. And that's what we see throughout the rest of that passage. I know all of us have been in a place before where we make a lot of plans for our lives, right? We make lots of plans. We're told to do this. But then at some point, we realize that God isn't quite on board with the plans that we have made for our lives. We discover that God has a different plan than what we have scripted out for ourselves. And that's exactly what happens to David here. David realizes that God has a different plan for his life and a different plan for his legacy. And it's outlined here in this passage in which God makes a covenant with David. Now, David has to respond too. He needs to to make a change as a result of this, of learning God's plan for his life. And he has a choice. Is he going to submit to God's design for his life? But here's what's so remarkable about all this. Often God comes to us with different plans than what we've uh, arranged for, right? And he calls us to submit to those plans. But here's the beauty of it, that in that submission, we always get something better than we originally planned. And that's absolutely true for David as well. God comes to David and says, first of all, this temple idea that you've had, all of that is off the table. Verses four to eight talks about that. He says, God will allow a king to build a temple, but it won't be David. That won't be David's legacy. But David will have a legacy, and it's outlined for us here. His name will be established like the name of the great ones on earth. Verse 9. God will give David and his people rest from all their enemies. Verse 11. God says in verse 12 that he will make David a house. Now, when you hear that word house, don't think about a physical house. Because what it actually means here is a dynasty. He is going to give David a dynasty. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, there's some initial fulfillment of these promises for David in his own kids, in his own immediate future. What we learn is that David's son, Solomon, later takes the throne, carries on for his father. He's the one that gets to build the temple that David wanted to build, but it doesn't end there. David's children, his grandchildren, they carry on the throne of this this David dynasty. But there's a deeper fulfillment 
to the promises of God that are given to David here as well. There certainly is an immediate fulfillment, but there's a deeper fulfillment to this covenant as well. And what we learn as the scriptures are unfolded is that the deeper fulfillment to David's promises are Jesus Christ himself. If you've ever looked at the first words of the New Testament, you open up to the New Testament, you get to the book of the Matthew, you look at Matthew 1, verse 1, what does it say this? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You see, what God is doing here for David is he's promising a king, but he's promising a king who will also be a savior And that savior gets to come from David's heritage, from David's lineage. Jesus is the king that everyone has been hoping for and been longing for. Jesus becomes the fulfillment of God's promises to David. I think we sometimes forget this when it comes to to Jesus Christ. We forget that kingly nature that comes with Jesus. We tend to focus on the fact that Jesus forgives sins. Uh, He comes to restore a right relationship with God. And don't get me wrong, those are incredibly important things. They're good things to really focus on. But what we sometimes miss is that Jesus also came to establish the kingdom of God. And that means that the rule of Jesus extends to every part of our lives not just our spiritual lives, but every part of our lives. But even beyond that, the rule of Jesus extends to every part of society and culture. And so Jesus did come to pronounce the good news of the gospel of the forgiveness of sins, but he also came to announce the kingdom, the coming kingdom of God, a new kingdom that has come to be established. And all you have to do is read the gospel to see this all over the place. That's all Jesus talked about was the coming kingdom of God. And what we learn is that that kingdom comes to provide real hope for humanity. So God is really saying this to David. He's saying, David, you want to secure your legacy through accomplishment and through doing. But my plans are different because your legacy will be secured in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And friends, the reality is the same thing is true for you and I. You see, empty religion is all about securing a reputation and a legacy through doing and through accomplishment. But God says that we ought to establish our reputation and establish our legacy in Jesus Christ, to center our lives on our relationship with God above all other things, to let him become the foundation of our identity, of our reputation and our future, because only in him is found real and enduring hope. Only in him can our legacy endure the test of time. And so all this becomes very much evidenced in David's life. But it isn't most evidenced in his accomplishment. Instead, weirdly enough, it becomes most evidenced in David's sin. And that's the last thing I want us to look at. We can't help but look at David's story without recognizing David's sin and the impact that it has on his legacy. 
Because later in David's life, what we learn is there is a tremendous moral failure in David. One day he's standing on the roof of his palace and he looks lustfully out at a woman. He decides that he wants to take her for his own. So he brings her into the palace, he sleeps with her, and then he casts her off. Just weeks, months later, he finds out that she's pregnant and David springs into action, not in repentance, but in the cover-up. And he does everything he can to try to cover up this sin that he has committed to the point in which his cover-up extends to the murder of that woman's husband, a man named Uriah. And at the end of it all, David thinks that he has gotten away with it, that he's gotten away with his sin until this same prophet Nathan comes and confronts David in the midst of his sin. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. We live in a culture now, sadly, uh, it's a time in which celebrity pastors, religious professionals seem to be getting rung up daily on moral failures, right? I heard about another one just this week. And what's so tragic about that is they often lose their ministries, they certainly lose their churches, they certainly lose their reputation. The carnage of these sort of pastoral moral failures is extensive. But when you think about it, very few of these current moral failures can even hold a candle to this heinous moral failure that you see in King David. And yet here's what's so remarkable about his story. Despite all of that, his reputation, his legacy, remarkably remains intact. Because he is still, despite this great moral failure, he is still considered one of the greats. He is still considered to be Israel's quintessential king, their best king. And we have to wonder, in spite of this moral failure, how could that happen? Why, could his, why does his legacy remain intact? How does it all survive such a great moral failure? And the answer is this. It survived not because of his accomplishments, not because of his doing things for God. It didn't survive certainly because his religious resume virtues. He managed to, to flush all that down the toilet. Instead, his legacy and his reputation survive because ultimately they were rooted in the promises of God made real in Jesus Christ. Because David's sin, no matter how heinous it was, could not interrupt the promises of God. His sin certainly had consequences, for sure. God, as our Father, disciplines his children. But yet that sin could not interrupt the promises that God made to him. Those promises held true. You see, David wanted to do something for God, but God instead did something for David. Christ is the fulfillment of the promise he is the house that endures. He is the true and real king of all. In closing, over the past couple of years, uh, I've been following um, a, a professional runner, um, a, a young woman named Gabe Grunewald. Um, and when she was in college, uh, she learned right before one of her last track meets, she literally got a uh, call from her doctor before one of her last track meets that said, you have cancer. 
And sadly, it is a very rare cancer and we're not really sure how to treat it. Of course, she had to go back out and run that race anyway. But after that race, she decided, I'm gonna battle this cancer with, with every aspect of my being. And so she engages in this battle in many ways, her cancer goes in remission. Uh, she's able to compete at a professional level. She even at one point uh, made it into the Olympic trials um, for her specific running discipline. But sadly, just shortly thereafter again, she finds that the cancer has come back and it has come back worse. She decides to battle a little bit more. She gets married. Um, she goes all throughout the world, uh, running, um, touring the world. Um, but sadly, this year, uh, finally at the age of 32, uh, the cancer became too much and she, she succumbed and passed away, leaving her husband behind. This past week, I listened to uh, a podcast that was given by her husband, and he described a time in the past year where they finally realized that in many ways the battle against cancer was lost. And he said, at that point, we, in, we didn't resign, but we just changed our thinking. And we decided, let's not think so much about the battle of cancer that we fought, but let's instead think about what sort of legacy we want to leave in the remaining months of our life together. Friends, the reality is we act like we are all guaranteed tomorrow, but we are not. And so we should always be concerned about what kind of legacy we are going to leave with our lives. We can make our legacy all about our doing and our accomplishing all sorts of things, and they might even be wonderful religious things. But in the end, the legacy that only brings lasting hope is a legacy built not on what you do for God, but on what God has done for you in Jesus. Let's pray.